Good luck with all that. (laughs) Haven't you felt that way about your relationships? As soon as relationships get to that place where you and I, where you and someone else, where a group of people get to know each other for real and not just like, not just passing, hey, your name is, I know you from the coffee shop, Uh, we may work together, but you're in another building. When you start to have relationship in any meaningful sense, you start to make a mess. And one of the easy ways to respond to that is sort of to say, listen, (laughs) good luck with all that. It's really easy to get to that place in life. It's real easy to get to the place where sin isn't just this distant abstraction. It's not just an idea, but it's something that affects me and hurts me and brings me pain. And vice versa, where I act and behave in ways that hurt other people. We've all experienced the effect of sin in relationships. So what we experience in this mess of human relationships is betrayal, anger, lies, shame, gossip, backbiting, abandonment, all those kinds of ways of describing what goes on in relationship. And the truth of it is that it can be a very painful mess. So it's not too far off to say that where we get to sometimes when we enter relationships is that place where we start to manipulate so that we don't have to be close enough so that you can hurt me. We start to have patterns in our life. And ultimately there are destructive patterns that keep relationship at bay. And so we talked about the first couple of weeks how God's design for us as human beings at a, at a fundamental level is that we were designed as relational beings. Not just because not just God said, you know what, I think I'm going to make human beings relational. It's because God is perfectly in relationship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence, perfectly in relationship with himself and out of the the overflow of who God is, he created us not just as relational beings because he wanted to, but created us as relational beings because he is himself a relational being. And so God's design is relationship. His agenda for that relationship we talked about last week, his agenda for us is growth in two particular kinds of ways. I mean, he said, be fruitful and multiply. And so what that means is to grow in number one, godliness, and number two, mission. Those are the two reasons we're in relationship. Every relationship you have is about growth in godliness and mission. Godliness that we are increasingly demonstrating the fruit of who God is through the Spirit His love, His joy, His peace. Things that come from His character and nature that we are increasingly manifesting that in our own lives and then extending that godliness to others. That's the mission. In all of its forms. And so this week, this week, before we progress into that area where we start to talk about forgiveness and mercy and talking truth to one another and covenanting in a relationship. We'll get there in the next few weeks, but, but we still want to simmer on the truth. We still want to marinate for a while on this truth that the mess that we're in isn't just that other person's fault. That it's our sin that creates this mess. And the truth of today that we'll look at in Genesis 3 is that unless we name and own our part of the mess, we will not progress 
so that grace can be how we operate with one another. It's not going to happen. Because I will always hold you hostage in my relationship. What we do with the mess, we talked about this the first week, what we do with the mess is we either isolate from it or we immerse ourselves in it. We either isolate ourselves from it so we can't get hurt or we immerse ourselves in it. We respond in a couple different ways. One is uh, very much a passive kind of response. I'm going to passively keep all of my relationships at a certain place so that those people don't hurt me anymore. We also, instead of drawing back in fear passively, we'll do the opposite. <laughs> Truth be told, this is me. This is who I am. I'm going to immerse myself and I'm going to, I'm going to angrily, vociferously tell the world how you or he or she has hurt me. And so we kind of respond in a couple of different ways in this isolation or immersion. And, and then sometimes there are lots of people who sort of are a confusing mix of passive-aggressive. <laughs> and it's a little bit of both. And I don't know how you uh, deal with that. That's one that I can't even deal with. <clears throat> so what we do is we hold people at length and we say, good luck with all that. Because the mess is too hard. The mess is too difficult. The real stuff of relationships is so hard that I don't know if it's even worth fighting for anymore because so much pain is the result of relational sin. And I don't have to ask you to tell me those stories. And I don't even need to tell you a whole lot about my own. I know that even as I say that basic truth to you, names are coming to mind. Situations and contexts in your own life where relational pain has happened are coming to mind for you. And maybe the other direction where you know that you have hurt someone else. Relational pain you've inflicted on others has been the case. So there's, there's no doubt that we're in a mess. The problem, the problem that we'll get to in the next few weeks, the problem is that the way that we approach fixing our relationships in ourselves will fundamentally never work. Keeping those relationships at bay does not keep us from pain. Immersing ourselves and vociferously and with anger demonstrating the pain of relationships will not help. And so today, we're going to sort of simmer in the truth that unless we name and own our part of relational pain and sin, we will continue to live in a place where it's always somebody else's fault. And our relationships... Relationships will not, as readily as God calls us to, demonstrate the cross of redemption. And that's what we're called to as believers. That's what we're called to as the body of Christ, is to demonstrate the cross of redemption in our relationships personally with one another. <clears throat> Max Lucado says it well. There's a cool quote. You may want to write this down. wish I'd said it. I didn't. Max Lucado says, We have to see the mess we are in before we can appreciate the God we have. We have to see the mess that we are in before we can appreciate the God we have. So let's turn to Genesis 3 and see ourselves here. Let's see how we got ourselves in this mess. Genesis 3 is what it looks like 
when we co-opt God's purposes, to co-opt is to take something from its original intent and to use it and to divert it for some other kind of intent. And that's what we do with our relationships. We manipulate them into things that are about us. There are contexts within which we can manipulate others around us for our purposes. So let's see how we do that here in Genesis 3. We're going to read the first 13 uh, uh, chapters, sorry, verses. We way don't have time for that. 3, 1 to 13. We're not going to go all the way through 19. Just through 13. It says this. We'll jump back at verse 1 in a minute, but let's read the whole thing first. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Well, the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Jump back at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now now check this out. The serpent was crafty, and we'll, we'll talk about the development of this throughout this passage in a second. The serpent was crafty. Because not only, and this is how we easily think about how mankind fell. It's not only the serpent attacking the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. What we're going to see in this passage is that the serpent was more crafty, not just because he was trying to get back at God because he was already in rebellion against him. The serpent's the evil one. We'll see that in a second. But, but the serpent was attacking the relationship between Adam and Eve. No dummy. The serpent's crafty. Make no mistake, friends. The serpent knew exactly how to get into Adam and Eve's relationship. It says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, we don't know how, but but somehow the serpent, and we, we know this is an assumption from the text that the text doesn't necessarily tell us this explicitly. The serpent already knows the command of God. Think about this for a second. It says the serpent was more crafty than any other, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent knows something. This is a hint here that the, the serpent represents Satan because Satan knew the command of God. 
It assumed from the beginning that the serpent knew everything Adam and Eve knew about the command of God. Look at this. Verse 1. He said to the woman, this is the serpent, he said to the woman, did God, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, how would the serpent know to ask this question if he didn't already know of God's original command in Genesis 2? The evil one works to deceive by calling into question the authority of God. The authority of God's word. Look back at Genesis 2, 16 to 17. For just a second to see the original command of God to Adam. 2, 16 and 17. Just these two verses it says, The Lord God commanded the man. It's very specific here. The Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now this command of God is a positive provision. It's really easy to look at these kinds of things and say, you know, like Eve does. God is just kind of out to prove his sovereignty and to prove how great he is. This tyrannical God is telling me I can't do this thing. Actually, actually it's a positive provision for the, for the Lord to make sure that the command of be fruitful and multiply. Remember one 26 through 8, God made us in his image and then said, go be fruitful and multiply. And so this is a positive provision. This is a way of God saying, you can be fruitful and multiply in part because I will sustain you. I will provide for you. That's what he says here. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, it says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's way of saying, I'm going to take care of you. You can trust me in this. And it is exactly that kind of trust in God that the serpent questions. Now notice how he does it here in chapter 3. With this one question, he begins to sort of woo the woman. Uh, and, and I'm using that word on purpose. He wins the woman over by simply, simply suggesting, this is how he attacks the relationship, suggesting that she by herself alone, apart from Adam, apart from God, by herself, she can be sustained. Who needs God to give you fruit? I mean, you can, you can do this on your own. With this one question, he suggests that she is capable of going against the command of God. Did God, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. The serpent at this point hasn't even directly contradicted the word of God. All he has done is simply suggest that Eve is capable of going against the command of God. No one had ever mentioned that before. No one had ever told me I could go against God's command. The serpent is actually flattering her it is not a stretch to say the serpent is sweet talking Eve and the serpent knows that the way to get back at God is to go into the relationship through the relationship between Adam and Eve now now one other thing before we move on notice how this suggestion attacks the relationship in Genesis 2 we just read that God gave the original command to Adam. It says the Lord God commanded the man. And now here in Genesis 3, the serpent asks the woman about what God actually said. God commanded Adam, but the serpent approaches Eve. This, this, is, this is subtly 
the way that the evil one indirectly attacks the relationship, directing his question to the woman. And we know that Adam was there because of verse 6 where it says he was with her. Adam was with her the whole time. So the serpent attacks Adam and Eve's relationship. Look at verse 2 real quick. Chapter 3, verse 2. It says, The woman said to the serpent, This is after the serpent questions and said, Did God actually say? The woman responded and said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now she omits, she takes away the word every. God's provision was a gracious provision. You can have every tree in the garden is the way he said it initially. Something didn't happen right in the transition, in the translation, the communication between Adam and Eve. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. True so far, but neither shall you touch it. God didn't say. So she adds this little bit to it. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. She's already beginning to be won over to the evil one's way of thinking about self-reliance, about rebellion against God. Listen, evil doesn't show up with hacksaws. Evil starts with the subtle suggestion that the Word of God doesn't have to be followed. That God's really just a a smidge of a tyrant out for himself. And what she does here, what she does here is she begins to twist the Word of God a little bit. She twists his command to make God sound like a tyrant when in truth he was making provision for them. Eve sounds a little bit here in twisting the way that the command had been. Eve sounds a little bit like an employee who is brought into the boss's office and, and the boss says, listen, you've been late a couple times and uh, we just need you to, to be aware of that and, and try to do better at showing up on time. And, and as soon as the boss says that, the employee uh, sort of storms out the door and uh, starts to spew to a co-worker. Do you know what that stuffed shirt said to me if i'm late one more time he's gonna fire me <laughs> well that's is that actually what he said <laughs> i mean can you see how see how that's not the same that's the that's the employee twisting the words of the boss isn't that who we are and what we do when we sin against the lord's commands Now, here's my question. Why did Eve feel open to that suggestion? We we don't know all the reasons why. We don't know anything explicitly. But we do know the fruit, so to speak, of her behavior. We don't know the specifics of why. We, we, We do know that she didn't trust God's provision. And at the same time, there's something about the relationship with Adam that she didn't trust. He's standing right there. So at this point already, there are outright lies that define the terms of the relationship, not just with God, but also with Adam. And the serpent's work is starting to be done. Keep reading. Look at verse 4. It says, But the serpent said to the woman, this is after she described what God had said, with a couple changes. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. I mean, you're made in His image, right? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is an in-your-face and, and blasphemous denial of God's provision. At this point, the serpent knows it's got Eve exactly where he wants her. And in verse 6, Eve acts upon that lie that God could not be trusted. Verse 6 says, 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. In other words, when she saw the opportunity for self-reliance, if she, when she saw that opportunity, she seized it and she got Adam in on the act. In fact, she led him to it. It says she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now let's turn away from me for a second to talk about Adam. Adam had been commanded by God to take that command of be fruitful and multiply and to extend it to anyone and everyone with whom he came into contact. And so what we see is that Adam, who was commanded to fruitfully extend God's word to to all around him, stood there in silence, shrugging his shoulders while the companion God made to be with him was wooed to rebellion. The silence of Adam is killing our marriages and our kids. And part of the mess that always seems to be somebody else's fault in this society needs to be owned by some men who need to start saying something. Doing something. Instead of standing idly by while the companion, Eve, or your son, or your daughter, or those around you in relationship, are being wooed away by a twisting of the Word of God. Don't come crying about how the mess is some political fallout. Or somebody in Washington. Or the educational system. Or blah, 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 blah. All of that is a diversion. All of that is diverting one's attention away from one's personal responsibility. The reason and the way God made you as a man. So step up and own it. At this point, in verse 7, they've both done the one thing, the one thing God commanded them not to do, and they are in full-on rebellion against Him. Look at verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew, suddenly they knew that they were, well, it doesn't say a mess, but they knew that they were in a mess. It says they were naked, but they knew they were in a mess. They knew that this new place of relationship that is broken with God and with one another, that something's wrong here, it's not going to work. They knew they were in a mess. So what do you do when you're in a mess? <laughs> you clean up. You clean up. Honey, get the paper towels. We've got a mess. That's kind of not exact translation, but that's about what happens here. It says, they sewed fig leaves together. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
I mean, they knew they were in a mess. They knew that their relationship was fundamentally not what it was supposed to be now. And could you imagine the kind of conversations that went on with Adam and Eve? Who knows what they were? But it's probably something like, how am I ever supposed to feel safe anymore, Adam? Anybody ever said that? (laughs) I know I've said things like I imagine that Adam might have said like, what would make you think that something a snake would say would be attractive? On and on, betrayal and abandonment and accusation and backbiting and blame shifting, that kind of thing was what began to mark their relationship. And so verse 7, they start to clean up the mess. They sewed fig leaves together. And, and, and here's an important phrase. It says, made themselves, made themselves loin cloths. Knowing, knowing what we know about sin and how much it would infect the world and fundamentally break up relationship, verse 7 is, is almost funny and sad at the same time. I mean, fig leaves were some of the largest available to them in the ancient world, and and the impulse to do what they could to cover their sin is a good impulse. It makes sense. At least they understood something has to happen to fix this brokenness, this divide. But listen, Adam and Eve thought they could clean up their sin by covering themselves with fig leaves. I mean, that'd be like taking a garden spade and starting to dig so that you could make the Grand Canyon happen. And then about a million years later, as you've been going 24 hours a day, you realize I'm not only making no progress at all, I am infinitely back where when I started and will never get there. That's, that's what covering one own, one's own sin looks like. Nothing you or I could ever do in our own power will make enough progress in covering sin, even relationally apart from Jesus. When when Romans 3.23 says that all have fallen short of the glory of God, it's not saying, oh, you've come so close, just just keep trying a little bit more. It's saying, "Mm, close but no cigar, not now, not ever. You will always and every time fall short of the glory of God. So, so here are Adam and Eve in, in verse 7, covering themselves to hide their newfound shame. And at this point, they may be thinking, great, we, you know, we're covered. We've, we've taken care of it, right? So let's keep up the charade. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's a picture of, of intimacy with God. God looking for intimacy with Adam and Eve. And the man and his wife hid themselves. They hid themselves. Good luck with all that. Arm's length. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now they're cowering in fear and shame before God. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? This is God trying to extend grace, trying to give another chance, trying to say, I'm here for you, providing. But blame shifting and name calling, just like relationships marked by sin. Verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam speaking to God, answering his question, Where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, this is God talking now, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, this is, this is Adam chewing the apple as he speaks. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, verse 13, what is this that you have done? Eve hides the apple behind her back and blames the serpent and says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Friends, the truth of Genesis 3 as it relates to our relationship is that we are exactly like Adam and Eve here. But, but, but here's the truly delusional part. Here's the truly delusional part. Not only do we shift the blame and try to cover ourselves with uh, fig leaves and pathetic excuses, we do so and we say things like this while keeping a straight face. Which means that we are truly lying to ourselves if we do not own our part of sin in any relationship. This isn't, just for, this isn't just for people who don't know Jesus. This is for people who follow Christ. To name and own your part of sin in relationships. We are so used to, to blame shifting and fear and avoidance. And, and really lying to ourselves. That we are incessantly sure of our innocence in so many of our relationships. It's a little bit delusional, honestly. There's a funny story I came across that sort of illustrates this. <clears throat> We're like the manager of a baseball team whose center fielder was performing just terribly. And so the manager of the, the baseball team, he, he goes out to center field and takes out the center fielder and says, I'm, I'm going to do this myself. So the first ball that came into center field uh, took a bad hop and uh, hit, hit the manager in his mouth. Second, second one was a high fly ball and uh, he lost it in the glare of the sun. And as he's going like this, it hits him on the head. And uh, he misses the second one. The third one is a, is a hard line drive, comes straight at him, and he's, he's running to it, and, and he misses it, and it hits him in the eye. Well, he runs back to the dugout furious. I mean, he's bruised and he's battered, but he's, but he's angry and he's furious. And he looks at the center fielder and says, what is wrong with you? You've got center field so messed up, not even I can do anything about it. We tell ourselves lies to be able to maintain some sanity, we think. Those are temporary fixes that don't help our relationships. We are in times so delusional when it comes to our messes that we actually begin to live like it is always someone else's fault. Which means we go through relationships in life, sometimes holding the apple behind our backs. Friends, the fatal flaw, the fatal flaw in human wisdom is thinking that we can change our relationships without changing ourselves. The fatal flaw in human wisdom is thinking that we can change our relationships without having to change ourselves. We think I'll get new relationships. I'll get different relationships. I'll become friends with different people. I'll, I'll change location. It's like a, a geographical change is going to mean that relationships are suddenly magically better. Those 
plus every tactic you can think of, fear, abandonment, uh, immersion, anger, every single one of those is a fig leaf tactic. It's a fig leaf tactic. Friends, if the Spirit of God isn't changing you, there is no possible way your relationships are going to suddenly improve by using fig leaf tactics. The only way to clean up mess in relationships is to name and to own one's personal responsibility and to admit that you cannot clean it up yourself. It's to admit that cleaning up the mess of relationships has to be done through the cross. Because, because Jesus is the only possible person in the history of the universe who has come and entered the mess of relationship without being part of the problem. The lie that we turn, sometimes try to believe is that our relationships will somehow improve without the redemptive work of Christ at the center of them. It's why James 5.16, which we're going to put on the screen here, James 5.16 is a, an important verse for us to remember. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The confession, the naming of your sin, and the confession of your personal responsibility in a relationship is how redemption begins to work. Coming to the end of one's self so that you can say to somebody else you've hurt in a relationship, I'm sorry, this is how I sinned against you. I take responsibility. Will you forgive me? Otherwise... Otherwise, uh, you will continue to manipulate and pretend that your relationships will change by a change of geography or tactic. <clears throat> the truth of this series is that alone does not achieve God's purposes. That's how He made us. He made us as a body. He made us as a family. He made us as a family where God is our Father. And as Father, He sent for us a Savior who redeems by His own poverty giving us riches. He is the only possible being who could have come and entered the mess and done something for us to clean it up and not been part of the problem. It is Jesus' perfect sinless life lived on behalf of us by which He assuages the wrath of God God's justified wrath against us. He makes up for it because of His perfect sinless life. He's the only one who could have entered the mess and not been part of the problem. And for us, for us now, this side of the cross, if you've named Him as Lord and Savior, there is nothing that can reconcile if it's not the blood of Christ and the cross and understanding that we covenant together to be family because of His righteousness for us. Not yours and not mine. Let's pray together.